You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, uh, Gary, you got a minute? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, I'd like to do an experiment here with you, if you don't mind. This is happening a lot lately. Did we fire all the lab rats? <laughs> we couldn't afford those guys. But look, you see what I got here? It's a bag of potatoes. And I mean, they're real potatoes. I'm going to hand them to you one by one. Now, what I want you to do is to look at their shapes carefully. Just tell me what you see, okay? All right. All right. Here. Here's uh, potato one. Genuine potato. What do you see there? Uh, kind of looks like uh, Bert from Sesame Street. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, now that you say it. I mean, that may apply to a lot of potatoes. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that's pretty good. And that says something about your television viewing habits. Here's a, uh, another one. How about this one? Yeah, this, this, this one looks like a potato. <laughs> really? <laughs> just a potato? It doesn't look like, you know, it's not an asteroid or anything. I mean. Well, I suppose it could be an asteroid. Yeah. Well, I suppose any potato could be an asteroid, yeah. right. uh, unlike the reverse. Well, all right, then let's let's try this one here. I think this one this one will really stimulate your imagination. All right, here you go. Man. Okay, this one has sort of a Picasso-esque nature to it. There's a face on it, as in, you know, a potato has eyes, but uh, they're offset, and um, one is squinting, the other is not. Uh, it's kind of disturbing, actually. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I noticed there is that... Uh, the ones where you saw something other than a potato, they, they were all faces. You, you never saw a typewriter. You never saw a ballpoint pen. This is true. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks, Gary. I always appreciate your uh, participation. Sure. Okay, well, what happened with Gary is not uncommon. I mean, he saw Bert, and he saw some Picasso figure in those spuds. We're all prone to seeing recognizable images in very ordinary objects or phenomena, like clouds or mountains. But we're especially prone to seeing faces. And sometimes we go one step farther, and we kind of infuse our interpretation of those images with meaning. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science, about face. I'm Molly Bentley. The phenomenon is called pareidolia. It's a tendency to see significance in random stimuli. But in the case of seeing faces, it's especially ingrained. Right. I mean, it happens to all of us. Whether it's looking at those European electrical outlets and seeing a smiling face, or just looking at your car and you see the headlights, they look like eyes, the grill looks like teeth, maybe the melted cheese in your burrito that looks distinctly like Elvis. But really, does that mean that the king is trying to speak to you via burrito? 
Skeptic Phil Plate can tell us what's going on. Yeah, all of this is called pareidolia, and it is a psychological term that is basically your brain wanting to see faces or at least recognizable patterns in what would otherwise be unrecognizable patterns. So, yeah, you know when you look at a car, it looks like a face or you might see a bird in the clouds or something like that. It's very common and actually hard to avoid. Well, clearly, this sounds to me like something with a lot of survival value, right? I mean, you don't want to mistake a feared enemy for a friend after all or, or, I don't know, lose your mother in a crowd. So being able to see faces easily, clearly that's a good thing, right? Yeah, and I've seen some studies on this, and I don't know how solid they are, but one of them said, for example, that as a baby, uh, the baby's eyes can only focus at a certain distance, and that turns out to be roughly the distance from the baby's face to the mother's face when it's breastfeeding. And so it could be that, you know, there's something in our brains that's hardwired to recognize faces. Now, I don't know if that's really accurate or not. However, if you take two dots and a curved line and put them on a piece of paper, it's a smiley face. And that is sort of the most simplified way you can make a face. And yet you still see it as a smiling face. It's two dots and a line. So it's amazing how hardwired this is into our brains. Well, I assume that this is what explains things like the man in the moon, right? Or, or, or Yeah. The... You know, I've never been able to really see the man in the moon that clearly. But uh, that goes back a long way. There are other things that are seen in the moon. There's a lady in the moon. There's a rabbit's face seen from the side. You see sort of the rabbit's head and the ears. That's very common, and that one I have seen. And, of course, there's other things like uh, the face on Mars, for example. The face on Mars. Tell me about the famous face on Mars. <laughs> well, it's a hill, you know. It's, it's a mesa on Mars, uh, but it's huge. It's about a mile across. And in early pictures taken by the Viking probe and such, it, you know, looked a little bit like a face, just enough that actually in a printout, somebody actually wrote face on the picture. And when you look at it, it's like, well, yeah, it looks like a face, but you'd have to be kind of hard pressed to think it's actually a face. Of course, there are people out there who like to do that. And so it it became its own little cottage industry of the face on Mars. You see it on T-shirts and books and such like that. But as uh, was predicted by, you know, me and a bunch of other people, once we put a better camera around Mars and it took a picture of that area, you could see it was just a hill. And I think it's just, again, pareidolia. You kind of squint your eyes and look at things, and they look like faces. And this was just another case of that. Well, okay. I hear you, and I've seen the high-resolution pictures of the so-called face on Mars. And indeed, they just look like a, you know, a bunch of rocks piled up. But nonetheless, there are still people who think that the face on Mars really is a face. That's not pareidolia. No, that's just the human ability to really, 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 really not see the obvious if you're invested in it. (laughs) So in in this case, there are people who really want that mountain to have been carved by aliens, Martians, humans from another dimension, whatever. Uh, And and they're invested in this idea and, and their bias, I think, just kind of blinds them to the what is obvious to everybody else, that this is just a hill that looks like a face. I see. So, I mean, there's an interesting transition here from illusion to delusion, where where they consider this good evidence. Uh, You deal with this all the time as a, you know, frontline skeptic. Uh, People sending you pictures, I assume, are pointing to pictures of cheese sandwiches or whatever. What what are some of your favorite examples of uh, pareidolia? 
Well, the the cheese sandwich is a good example. The grilled cheese sandwich that had a picture of uh, the Virgin Mary on it. That one um, was just a basically a, a burn spot in a sandwich. And some guy said, hey, it looks like the Virgin Mary. And next thing you know, it's famous. I actually got to hold that sandwich. It was encased in a clear plastic container so that nobody could touch it. But a uh, casino had just bought it. And so uh, I happened to be there and a guy showed it to me. That that one I kind of liked. And, and there was another one. I mean, but they, they, paid, they, they paid real money for that, didn't they? Oh, it was very expensive. I don't remember what it was, but they—I don't think they believed it was the Virgin Mary making an appearance in a sandwich. I think they knew that it was a popular object in modern internet lore, and so they bought it for, you know, advertising purposes. So, you know, clever move on their part, perhaps. Um, but you know, now they own a cheese sandwich encased in lucite. <laughs> I, 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 what about the burnt tortilla? That—that uh, that was Jesus, I believe. They saw Jesus in a burnt tortilla. I, I mean, on the face of it, so to speak, it seems a little odd that uh, Jesus would reveal himself in a tortilla, but there were people who thought so. Well, that's an interesting point. Now, first of all, when people see Jesus or they see the Virgin Mary, especially with the Virgin Mary, there's a famous uh, drawing of her where her head is down. She's wearing a, a cowling over her head. Uh, that's just, you know, very easy to replicate under natural circumstances. It's just sort of a rounded oval. And uh, there was a, an oil stain uh, on an underpass on a Chicago highway that had clearly been dripping from cars above as they were driving over this thing. And I saw that one, drove right past it, and you can see it, and it's just a natural formation. But a lot of people had left flowers and tokens of, of uh, appreciation and that sort of thing. And it's, it's easy to see what you want to see in these things. So, for example, where somebody sees Jesus in a tortilla, somebody else is going to see a different face altogether. I think a lot of these look like uh, Frank Zappa. I think a lot of them look like Abe Vagoda. You get a lot of these sort of uh, uh, canonical actors and singers and whatever you're, you're used to seeing. And, for example, when, when a lot of people saw the Virgin Mary in the, in the grilled cheese sandwich, I thought it looked like the actress Barbara Bain. But I grew up watching Mission Impossible in Space 1999, so that's me. Something that I think many people don't realize is pareidolia doesn't just apply to imagery. Uh, years ago, my friends were telling me that if I only would play one of the records by the Rolling Stones backwards, not that I had a turntable that could do that, but if, if I did that, I would hear secret messages, maybe from the devil, maybe from Mick Jagger, maybe there's no difference there. Is that also a form of pareidolia? Sure. I don't know what the technical term for it. I've always called it audio didolia, audio audio idolia. I don't know. There's not really a good term for it. Uh, but this is the idea that you can reverse music, reverse speech, and hear uh, some sort of profound message. You can glean something deeper from it. And it's it's another example of that. And I've seen this done where somebody has, has taken, for example, a Britney Spears song and played it backwards and then asked the audience what they heard, then played it again, but this time put the words up on the screen as he's playing it, and you you swear you're hearing those words, even though you didn't a second ago. It's an amazing effect that your brain does to trick you into thinking you're hearing voices. And again, it, it may be a similar biological evolutionary adaptation where you're trying to pull a signal out of the noise, and when you're hearing this music backwards, this speech backwards, your brain is struggling to hear some sort of uh, sensible message in it. And once somebody prompts you to what you're hearing, boom, it's all you can hear. It's amazing. Uh, but that's just the way our brains work. You know, you can find optical illusions online where you would swear you're seeing the color blue when it's green or you're seeing crooked lines when they're straight or something like that. And it's the same thing with sounds. You swear you're hearing voices, you know, late at night, for example, when your heater turns on or something and it sounds like people are whispering. 
I think that's probably behind a lot of ghost stories and things like that as well. I don't know. But it's clear that that's what our brains are trying to do. Yeah, I have to say, I go to sleep to a white noise generator that I built. So it makes, you know, white noise, which is, <laughs> I know you're laughing you're at me. You're radio astronomer. You built a white noise generator for yourself. Yes, I did. And, and I tell you, it works, man. But the thing is, you know, you turn it on, and it sounds like somebody's turned on a faucet in the sink really hard. That's the sound it makes. But doggone, if you lie there and actually listen to the noise, you can hear anything in there. I mean, you can hear the Gettysburg Address. You can hear voices, anything. Yeah, and that's just one of the things our, our brains do. And it's just very difficult to avoid that, in fact. You know, I, I look at pictures uh, of astronomical objects all the time. And once you see an elephant, a cat, a face, a word in those pictures, then they're just, you know, gas clouds or stars or whatever. But man, once you see that, it is really hard to see anything else. Once it is seen, it cannot be unseen. Phil Plate, thank you so much for talking with me. I want to tell you that as soon as I can, I'm going to play this interview backwards and see what I can learn. <laughs> Astronomer Phil Plate is forward-thinking as a skeptic for the great Slate magazine blog, badastronomy.com. Really interesting. I mean, we've all had these kinds of experiences. By the way, the uh, BBC reported that that cheese sandwich with the image of the Virgin Mary that Phil mentioned, well, that sold for $28,000, and that was in 2004. Even then, the sandwich was already a decade old. I suppose it's even more stale by now. <laughs> you think so, after 20 years? Yeah. It's a stale sandwich? Well, it's a, but it's a very expensive sandwich. <laughs> Actually, I think that the money was supposed to go to charity. That was also reported. It's still an expensive sandwich. <laughs> That's true. Also, the idea that a face is, at its very simplest level, a couple dots and a line, like Phil said, has found support in recent neuroscience research. So coming up, tapping into the neurons for facial recognition. And as we say in radio, don't believe everything you see. It's About Face on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so we're primed to see faces in potatoes, bananas, clouds. And is this because an agent is speaking to us through vegetables, fruit, or condensed water vapor, or... Because our brains are primed to see faces, period. Neuroscience seems to find evidence for the latter idea. And indeed, sometimes what we find out about how the brain works comes by surprise, as it did for this researcher. My name is Josef Parvizi, and my work is about treating patients who have medication-resistant epilepsy. He works with patients who have been having uncontrollable seizures for years and that don't respond to medication alone. These patients go to his clinic at Stanford Medical Center in Palo Alto, California. And for a select few, Dr. Parvizi and his team suggest alternative therapies that involve surgery. 
They may decide to implant devices to monitor the seizures or even perform resective surgery. That's carefully removing the region of the brain where the seizures originate. It goes without saying that that's precision work. I specialize in functional mapping of the brain because we want to actually map where the seizures are coming from and also map the function of that particular part of the brain so that we are safe when we go and cut the seizure focus. And to do that, he first implants electrodes to see what's going on so that neuroscientists are collaborating with epilepsy patients to learn about the brain, something that they've done throughout history. Now, epileptic seizures don't happen continuously, so when they're not occurring, scientists can study other phenomena of the brain. After all, I mean, they do have their measuring electrodes right inside there. And that brings us to the surprising revelation that Yosef Parvizi and his team had about how the brain recognizes faces. This from surgery that his neurosurgeon recently performed on one of his patients. These patients have to go through a very risky procedure, namely surgery, where Electrodes are implanted inside the head by my surgery colleagues. The wires come out. I can, in fact, show you some of these electrodes. You're opening up your file drawer. Yeah, in this file uh, drawer, under E for electrodes, I have some of these electrodes that we have cleaned. You you have your electrodes filed under E? Yes, that's correct. I have... uh, issues with remembering where things are, so I have to actually go with my intuition. So E for electrodes, help me. Okay, so you've pulled out what is a a long wire, and then it has sort of a plastic end. What is this at the end? So you see a plastic film, which is very thin and brain-friendly. You see some numbers uh, inside this plastic sheet. Each number is one electrode. So we put this over the surface of the brain. Patient's uh, head is wrapped while we listen to their brain activity. We wait for the spontaneous seizures to come. And this is very important to discuss because these patients are uh, lying there waiting for their seizures to come. It may take five to seven days, during which time we go and ask them if they are willing to donate some of their time for research. And that is uh, the research we were going to talk about, namely how the human brain perceives faces. And you had an extraordinary case of a man whose brain you had implanted electrodes in, and um, his ability to perceive faces changed. And I wonder if you could just tell me that story of what happened. Absolutely. So this gentleman had seizures that always started with some visual changes. That gave us some evidence that we have to look for visual areas of the brain to see where exactly seizures are coming from. As part of invasive monitoring, we do something called electrical stimulation. It uh, doesn't damage the brain at all but it kind of perturbs the function of neurons that are receiving this electrical charge. This is exactly what we did in um, our patient's case. And all of a sudden, patient reports that he was looking at my face and all of a sudden, my face melted as if it was made of wax and somebody was uh, bringing a candle towards it. My uh, face got so distorted that the feeling was uh, very unnatural and also startling to the patient himself. 
Are you saying just your face melted in front of him, not not your body or not the room? It was just your face? Yes, in fact, uh, it was my face. Uh, we asked him to look at TV or uh, other objects in the room, and similar thing did not happen. And also, he uh, told us that he still knew that I was standing there and that uh, a man was standing there because he says very clearly that, yes, uh, only your face changed because I could see your suit and tie. The patient had uh, left the hospital. He came for a follow-up appointment, at which time we had uh, arranged with the, pa- uh, with the patient's consent that a sketch artist could be there to, uh, to sketch not my actual face, but the face that was created with electrical stimulation. And that's the ugliest face I have ever seen of myself. It was almost like uh, I have a mask made of wax and somebody is pulling it to one side. And that is what uh, he described to the sketch artist and the sketch artist uh, put it together. When you stopped stimulating this part of the man's brain, was he able to recognize you again? Did your face come back into clarity? Yes, so the stimulation is only for one second or two seconds during uh, which he has my face completely metamorphosed. And once the electricity stops, my face comes back perfectly to normal. So does this suggest to you that there's a particular part of the brain that's devoted to recognizing faces and only faces? It's a very important uh, question, how localized are functions in the human brain? It's been known uh, throughout the history of clinical neurology that there is a particularly important region within the brain called fusiform gyrus that has the function of processing faces. Our research doesn't suggest that those cells and only those cells that we electrically perturbed are important for perceiving faces. Those cells have their connections and whenever I deliver electricity, the electricity flows in those connections. We have recently found that very close to the area where faces uh, are specialized, there is also an area that is very important for recognizing numbers. Numbers, of course, uh, you might say, are cultural constructs. These are symbols that we have created culturally that are very similar to each other, but they have very different meanings. Three and eight are extremely different in their meanings. What we have found is that the area that is uh, responding selectively to numbers is surrounded by a pool of neurons that respond to uh, lines with angles and curves, any kind, in terms of which line is crossing which line, what is the angle between them, what is the curve, etc. Well, you can imagine how evolutionarily important this function is. Monkeys uh, jumping from one tree to another, they need to be able to actually recognize these lines crossing each other, branches crossing each other. The same thing might apply to faces. So the face region, yes, is extremely specialized, but it might be a region that is putting visual features together, namely a round feature, and within that round so-called face, you have two dots for eyes, one vertical line for a nose, one horizontal line for the lip. So that might be just the region of the brain that binds these features together. In the case of your patient, 
when you stop perturbing these cells in his brain, he was able to then uh, recognize your face. Are there people who, who have the phenomena with them constantly? Are there people who cannot recognize faces? Yes, these patients often uh, have problems in their social life because they can't recognize faces and uh, every one of us knows how important faces are for social functioning. For example, you see them in the corridor, they don't recognize you, uh, you think they are ignoring you. Uh, and some others are uh, completely uh, disabled to the extent that they can't function in our social life. Uh, there are degrees of uh, this pathological condition called prosopagnosia. And, and I wonder if you do have this condition, if you would have, in order to function, you would have to look for other cues on the human body in order to identify someone. So if you came walking toward me, I, I might look at your shoes and say, okay, that's Dr. Pervizi's shoes, although I couldn't recognize you by looking at your face. Absolutely, and that is how some of these patients function. Uh, we had a patient who could not recognize uh, his wife but he could understand that the wife is sitting in front of him because of the wife's voice and also sometimes because of the haircut or uh, just the eyebrows or the nose. So they can't put the whole face together, but they can actually uh, detect certain features of the face that are idiosyncratic to the person they remember. There's a phenomenon, as you know, where uh, we see faces in non-human objects. <laughs> we see faces in bananas or just a lamppost or so forth. Could that be originating from this part of the brain as well? Do you have any guess as to whether the, the fusiform gyrus has a role in our seeing a face in a lamppost? I think so. I think in answer to your question, I would say that I'm not an expert uh, in this uh, field. But what I would guess is that when certain uh, visual features are bound together, or detected together, then there might be a signal in the brain generated indicating that a face is being seen. So these features might be visual lines of rocks together or clouds together or certain shapes that have nothing to do with faces, but the human brain is detecting these features together and a signal is generated. Joseph Parvizi, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Now, I noticed you have a teapot here, and I don't know if you can see the face in the teapot. <laughs> well, this handle here looks like the nose and then the Right, right. I had not uh, thought about that, but I'm going to look at my teapot from now on as a face. <laughs> right. <laughs> Joseph Parvisi is an associate professor at Stanford University and clinical neurologist and epilepsy specialist at Stanford Medical Center. So we have hints as to where in the brain we do the processing to recognize faces, but is recognizing faces any more important than recognizing, say, hands or bananas or trees? Nancy Canwisher is a professor at the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT and is one of the foremost researchers studying the evolutionary importance of face recognition. She studies the neural and the cognitive mechanisms underlying human vision. She's identified several regions in the brain that play a role in the perception of specific visual stimuli, such as faces. And that allows us to ask, why are we so primed to identify faces? We're a very social species. 
So faces are part of that, obviously. One of the primary things we do when we encounter another person is to look at their face. We do that to recognize who it is. But even if we don't recognize them, uh, we can get a huge amount of relevant social information from a face. We can tell if the person's happy or sad, old or young, male or female. So all of this is hugely socially relevant information that's been biologically important surely throughout much of human evolution. And sometimes just a small detail on the face, maybe a slightly furrowed brow or whatever it may be, is all it takes to signal to us the mood or the position of the other person. Absolutely. There's extremely subtle information we extract from faces. And sometimes, you know, the slightest little frown, it's not just a very subtle cue in a face. It may also be very fleeting. So often in one-on-one social interactions, the emotional expressions that may flit across uh, the other person's face may register only extremely briefly. So it may be very important to detect that fleeting information. Is recognizing faces and recognizing the cues in faces unique to human primates? Oh, certainly not. Certainly not. A friend of mine years ago told me that the way to understand macaque monkeys is to think high school, right? So macaques are all about, you know, who is that and who are they interacting with and what are they indicating to someone else. So there's very rich social interaction in macaques and probably lots of different primate species and probably lots of non-primate species as well. And they read all kinds of information from each other's faces. They have to be. You know, if there's a threatening facial expression in a macaque, the macaque it directed toward needs to be able to read that. And if they can't read those cues, it will not be good for their social standing and their life success. Now, Joseph Parvizi talked about the role of the fusiform gyrus, an area that I believe you refer to as the fusiform face area. Now, this uh-huh. is an area that's devoted to recognizing faces. It sounds like that's an area where facial recognition is localized in the brain, but not everything in the brain is localized. And I'm wondering if there's more than one area that plays a role in our ability to recognize faces. Right. One of the interesting things about the face system in the brain is that there is more than just one region. So the fusiform face area is sort of the most obvious initial one that we found first, but there are a number of other regions. There's a region that's a few centimeters away out on the outer surface of the brain. The fusiform gyrus runs along the bottom surface of the brain, but on the outer surface, out somewhere near the ears. If you went straight in the ear canal, you'd be in the right zone. There's a long fold in the brain called the spiritemporal sulcus. And all along that sulcus is a whole set of interesting aspects of social cognition seem to be engaged in there. And there's one little patch in there that responds very strongly when you look at moving faces, much more than static faces. So the idea of an animated face, we would process that differently. So we showed a few years ago, and other people have shown this as well, that if you show a three-second movie clip of a face, silent movie clip of a face, in this case it was kids who were playing and laughing and talking to other people, you just look at a silent three-second clip, you get a huge response in a particular region of the superior temporal sulcus that responds only about a a third as strongly if you show, for example, three one-second snapshots taken from that same movie. So there's information present in the dynamic information in the movie that's not present in the snapshot. As a sidebar, I don't know if you are a fan of silent films. Well, I think they're extremely interesting, and and I think that's the kind of information these regions process very well. Yeah, right. So you see where I'm going with that is that we've watched silent films recently, my family and I, and we find that there is so much emotion that is conveyed in a very economical way 
You don't need the words, but we can tell what's happening with just a flicker of the face. And in some ways, it's more potent. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, and probably in large part because we have all this brain machinery that's just sitting there waiting for that information to come in that's ready to process exactly those cues. And finally, you know, some people say that they have a great memory for faces. And I think what they're really saying is that they can pair a face with a name. Or are they really just saying they can remember faces well? Because it seems like we can all do well, that. Well, it's a good question. And in fact, there's, a, there's quite a bit of research on this recently. So I think there's at least three different things they could be saying. One is imagine you have two photographs of very similar faces side by side. And you have to say, is that the same person or a different person? That's perception, right? There is, you don't have to remember it over a long time. You just have to scrutinize it and tell the difference. So you can think of that as perception. But then if I ask you two minutes or three days later, is this one of the faces you saw? Now we're testing memory, and that's, that could be quite different. In fact, we have some data to suggest that there's quite a different ability than face discrimination. And the third thing is, who is that person and what's their name? That's yet a third dissociable thing. So you can recognize a face and know that you've seen that face before, but that's a different thing than knowing who that individual is or what their name is. So there are at least three different aspects of face processing, and there's some evidence that those three may be separable uh, in the brain with different brain mechanisms involved. Nancy Canwisher, thank you so much for speaking to us. My pleasure. Nancy Canwisher is a professor at the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. Okay, well, now we have a better idea of not just why we can easily spot a face in a crowd, but maybe even why we think the foam on our latte looks like Abe Lincoln. But can we get a machine to do the same? We're thinking critically about what we see and how we know what we know about what we see on Skeptic Check About Face. On Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches... April 9th. We're talking about face on Skeptic Check here on Big Picture Science. All right, let's wander onto the streets of the Big Apple, New York City, where reporter Marissa Fessenden is taking a walk with artist and creative technologist Greg Borenstein. We've kind of stopped at this corner. What, what do yeah, you well, see? There's this, there's this sprinkler connection here for the fire department that consists of these two kind of short and fat plugs coming off the wall with a chain that connects them. And the plugs have these round uh, nubs on the end that look a lot like 
pupils of some eyes and the chain is like a kind of goofily smiling smile coming off connecting the, the two underneath in, a, in an arch since it's green i i see a frog yeah it definitely looks a little bit like a frog or like a like a goofy alien Greg knows how easy it is for him to spot faces, non-human, non-animal faces, in the urban scene around him. But he also has a camera and a computer program to do the same. A computer program such as Face Tracker, for example, can find human faces in photos and so forth. But weirdly enough, it also exhibits pareidolia of its own, finding faces in inanimate objects such as wall outlets. In other words, it finds faces that don't exist. Do you think it will see the face that we saw in the fire department um, I, I will be surprised if it does, because it really likes to have um, outlines around the faces, but we'll see. You're pointing so, it yeah, now pointing at the... Pointing my laptop camera at the, the fire sprinkler. Yep, there, actually, okay, it is seeing a face, except for it, the face that it saw wasn't the same one that I saw nearly at all. Its eyes are sitting right on top of the sprinkler, um, and its mouth is on the letters that say fire department. Uh, in addition to the face on the sprinkler itself, when I turn the computer slightly here, it seems to be seeing uh, a face in this kind of brick here, just randomly on one of these slices of brick that really looks nothing at all like a face to me. And it's seeing just one part of that as a little tiny scrunched up together face. It's really, it's really very strange. And Greg Bornstein wrote a program to help him understand how machine pareidolia differed from the human tendency to see faces where there are none. Face Tracker was created by Jason Suragi, who's a, a computer science researcher, and it uses a set of um, algorithms to detect faces and then to find the facial features, so the eyes, the nose, the mouth, and then to track those as they move around. So not just to see a face, but to follow its expression as it moves. Now, the face tracking program also sees faces where there are none. And you and Marissa walked around the streets of New York City, and we got some examples of that. In one case, it seems to have found a face in the brickwork um, that you and Marissa were not able to spot. Yeah, so um, there were these kind of uh, vertical striated bricks, and um, they really looked nothing like faces at all to me. But the, the face tracker decided that there was a tiny face in one of those vertical bricks. That's incredible. So you were holding up the camera to this brickwork, and it found a face that you would not have spotted. Yeah, absolutely. It found a face and it thought it knew where the face's eyes and nose and mouth were. Um, and it was a little tiny kind of vertically stretched face. And sometimes when it does that, I can see kind of where it's getting that idea. But in this case, I really couldn't at all. So it sounds as though the face tracker system, which is programmed to look for human faces, has a kind of pareidolia of its own, where it sees faces just as humans do, where there are none. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's looking for a pattern just like we do. It's looking for a pattern of bright and dark spots to find the face. And then it's looking for um, the facial features within that using its algorithm. And, you know, it's just looking at pixels in an image. Um, so the same way we're looking at light and dark that falls on our eyes. So sometimes the patterns in those pixels look to it like a face. They match its algorithm the same way to us. Patterns of light and dark in a cloud or the side of a building or a fire hydrant will, will look like a face. Well, you designed an experiment around this and around this tendency of a computer program to exhibit pareidolia. Can you explain briefly what your experiment was? Yeah, so um, my project was machine pareidolia, and I, I took this database of photos on Flickr where a group of people had collected pictures of things in the world that caused them to experience pareidolia, little bits of things that looked like faces to them. 
uh, called Hello Little Fella. And I took all the pictures from that from that Flickr group and I ran them through Face Tracker and I output the results so I could see if Face Tracker also saw those faces, if it saw other faces, or if it saw uh, slightly related faces. And I found that some of the time it found exactly the same face that we were seeing. You'd see it and it'd be like, man, it gets it. it. That's totally exactly the face that the person who took this picture was thinking of. And then sometimes it would be kind of close, like seeing part of the object as a face, but not matched up. Maybe the eye was in a different place. Maybe what we were seeing as the, the nose, it was seeing as the mouth. Um, and then sometimes it would see just random details and images as faces, like like we saw in the brick in this case. Should we be surprised that machines have pareidolia? I mean, don't we want our machines to be better than humans, that they should be more precise? It seems as though they're vulnerable to the same mistakes that we make. I think when machines are more precise than humans, um, it kind of can freak us out a little bit. There's certain kinds of glitches that machines do that will terrify or really frustrate us. For example, when we have some really practical need, like if you're at the airport trying to check in and the ticketing system is sending up strange glitches, that will just infuriate you because you're you're nervous and you need its help. But I think in cases like this, seeing um, the false positives, this pareidolia effect is actually kind of, I don't want to say humanizing because it's, it's a very different pareidolia than we experience, but um, it gives it character. It lets us see kind of its foibles and personality in a certain sense. But it also suggests that there's a lot more work to be done on the machines. I mean, although it's great that it's finding cute faces in the brickwork and, and so forth, um, that won't help you much if you want an accurate face tracker program. Well, I don't think the goal for this kind of stuff is ever to be perfectly accurate. Obviously, researchers always, you know, they want to be more useful and they want to create new algorithms that can get some of the incredibly rich information that we can pull out of images in just a glance. And in many ways, these fields are really in their infancy. But there's no sense that to be perfect, these algorithms would become exactly like people. They really have their own character and they do different things. For example, Google searches through websites. It doesn't do it anything like how people do it. It doesn't read the websites, kind of think about them, digest them, remember certain anecdotes, and then tell them back to you when you ask about it the way a person would. It does this totally other alien thing of having this gigantic index of all of them and being able to instantaneously pull up a set of pages that algorithmically it decided fit your search criteria the best. But we like that a lot more than we like it if it was like a person. And we've learned how to use it and we've built our culture on those kind of things. So I think that it's important not to mistake uh, this kind of technology for being kind of just a bad version of a person. Although it's interesting that you're saying we shouldn't confuse this machine program with a person, and yet you're using words like personality and, and character to describe it. Yeah, it's true. It's unfortunate we don't have a great vocabulary for talking about um, things uh, with feeling, um, like to talk about the qualities of things. Our whole language for talking about those tends to treat them as dumb and innate. And to some degree, that's why when they have this more surprising, rich behavior, we want to see them as human. Um, there's a kind of pareidolia there, too, where, where as soon as the, the computer algorithm does something human-like or something that humans also do, like detect faces, we constantly, we immediately want it to be a person. But it's not. It's different. And maybe we need better language for talking about that, for its machinic qualities, if that didn't have a kind of dumb, negative connotation. Well, Greg, you've written about your experience with your face tracker experiment and that there were some times where it surprised you. And in fact, sometimes it would find faces that were sort of eerie. The experience was eerie for you. How so? Um, Well, it's eerie in the sense that it's alien. I mean, it's seeing a face that I didn't see 
And, but it seems like there's a logic to it. It's just not a human logic. And in some ways, that's, that's most eerie when it's similar to the places I would see a face. When it's seeing a face in a bit of brick or just kind of randomly, that's mysterious, but it's not quite eerie. There's this un- other kind of uncanny experience where it's almost the same as what a person would see. Like it's locked onto the same eyes, but it thinks the nose is in a different place or something like that. That really has this uncanny quality to it because um, it's like a human and then you start to think of it as a human, but it's not. Whereas in, that's why in some ways the, the places where it sees faces that we don't see at all really tell you the most about it in some ways. It's very different than how we see them, but it has its own specificness. It has its own individuality, a kind of natural quality. It's almost like, like a pet. Like, why does your cat stare blankly at a window that you don't understand? What, where are the ghosts that your cat sees? It has that kind of quality where it's, it's alien and it's not human, but there's not necessarily anything scary about it either. Greg Bornstein, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Greg Bornstein is an artist and creative technologist who teaches at New York University. Now to the opposite coast, to the Computational Vision Lab at the California Institute of Technology. Okay, so computers can find a face in a crowd. But can they do any better than that? I mean, can a computer with a camera on it scan a landscape, find the mountains, the birds, the burbling brook? Can it even find an empty space in a giant mall parking lot? Well, generally speaking, the answer is no. So, of course, we wondered, why is machine vision so difficult to program into a machine? Pietro Perona is a professor of electrical engineering, computation, and neural systems at the California Institute of Technology. Pietro, you know, a lot of point-and-shoot cameras today, I note, seem to be able to recognize faces. If you aim the camera at a crowd of people, you see on the screen these little green rectangles outlining the faces. When I first saw that, I thought, that's really pretty impressive. Any idea how these cameras do that? How do they know where the faces are? So let me take a step back. So first of all, let me say that this is a great success of my field, which is computer vision. When I was a graduate student in Berkeley in the 90s, or 80s in fact, sadly, we didn't know how to approach visual recognition. Truly, we had no clue as to how to do it. Nobody knew around the world. And now we have uh, very good ideas about how to do it. It doesn't work quite as well as we would wish, but we, we know how to approach a problem. So this said, how could it do it? So the camera has to face two challenges. One is you know, it's difficult to find objects and faces in particular. And the second one, it has to be done very fast because the camera has to just find them on the spot and show them to you in your viewfinder. And it probably uses a few tricks. For example, skin has a very distinctive hue. Whether you're uh, Caucasian or black, it seems to uh, have a certain hue that is common across races. And um, some fairly simple image processing operations may reveal where this hue is present. And so, Probably what uh, camera manufacturers do, they try to compute this hue and find splotches that have a certain shape and a certain ratio of height versus width, and there they put their boxes. There may be a few more tricks. For example, the area around the eyes is typically darker than the area just above, which is the forehead, and two areas below, which are the cheeks. And so you could check very quickly whether in this splotch of pink hue you have darkness in the middle. And you can use a few of these tricks. And so you can think of maybe 10 very good engineers working for a few years, and they produce a piece of software that will detect faces well. Well, that's impressive. I have to say, to me, it's impressive that it knows where the faces are. But if machine vision gets, you know, orders of magnitude better, presumably it will continue to get better. 
what what do you foresee as the most interesting applications? What would you love to use this for? Well, there are an enormous number of applications. If you think of any machine that uh, is around, it's typically used by people. And a machine that is aware uh, about people and its surroundings is a very useful machine. It can take decisions and it can adapt to the environment. So almost any machine we use, we would wish it to know where we are and, and what we do. And we would wish it to know about other things in the surroundings. And at that point, engineers could build an enormous amount of functionality on it. So just to go through a big laundry list. So automobiles, so nowadays there are around 1.2 million people killed in traffic accidents every year, most of them by driver's error. So if machines could drive and you could certify that the machine can drive well, but the machine doesn't get drunk, it doesn't get tired, you would have fewer accidents. Uh, search in the web. Right now you can only search with words. It's very difficult to search with images. And so there are an enormous number of interesting queries and questions we have that we cannot answer. For example, you see a bird on your bird feeder outside your window. Even if you took a photograph of it, you wouldn't know what to type into Wikipedia to figure out what species is it. So you would like to type an image into Wikipedia and get your answer. And so computer vision would help you there. If you think of all the surveillance tasks that we have to make places safer, like transportation systems, freeways, public parks, and so how could you check that uh, everything is going right, there is no accident, there are no people hiding behind corners. So all of that could be done by automated systems and without bothering people to do it. I, I think immediately of robots. I, you know, it's very fashionable these days to say the robots are coming, they're coming down the pike, everybody's going to have a robot. But if they can't really see, I don't mean having cameras, of course, but see, you know, they're not going to be able to bring me a, a drink from the bar because they, they may have the mechanical agility to pour a drink, but they can't see the glass and the, and the bottle very well of where I'm sitting. I, I can imagine this would be a big breakthrough for robotics. That's right. There are a number of companies who think that the starting point would be giving people automated vacuum cleaners. And um, you, can, you know a few already, for example, the Roomba uh, made on the East Coast and the Mint made here in Pasadena. And uh, those have fairly rudimentary sensory systems, and so they don't see where the dirt is, and they don't see where the obstacles are, and they don't know exactly where they are within the house. But uh, if they had a good vision system, they would do a much better job. They could go to the places that need their work, and they would remember where they've been, and so they wouldn't vacuum twice the same place, etc. They could find the sockets and plug themselves in. And all of that is coming. I think it's a matter of maybe five years, and we should be able to buy for 299 or whatever the popular price level would be uh, these robots. Well, well, that sounds encouraging because machine vision has always sort of struck me like the attempts to get computers to translate languages. I mean, we have computer programs that do that now, but, you know, it's not really <laughs> idiomatic uh, English or whatever it is they're translating from to English. I mean, it's, it just doesn't quite work well enough. Is, is that going to change for machine vision in you know the foreseeable future? You said five years there. You, you, you see a short timeline for big improvement? Oh, the improvement has been enormous uh, in the last 10 years. As I was telling you, when I was a grad student, we didn't know how to approach visual recognition, and now we, we know how to approach it. So th there are new techniques and new ideas coming out every year. A big effort right now is combining computer vision and machine learning to produce machines that will be able to learn from examples and become better at a task. 
earlier, we talked about how can you detect photographs, how can you detect faces in photographs, at least or in pictures, how does a camera do it? So that took many engineers, gifted engineers, quite a few years to get it right. Now we would like to be able to train machine vision systems to recognize thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of objects. So think of all the Chinese characters, all the products you find in supermarkets, all the objects you see around the house. And how could you do that? Well, you couldn't have a team of 10 engineers per object figuring out how to do it. You have to teach the machine just by showing examples. And so this is the great challenge at the moment, how to get a machine that can recognize, say, 100,000 different objects, categories, subcategories, uh, and do it reliably in any lighting environment. Pietro Perona, thank you so very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Pietro Perona is a professor of electrical engineering, computation, and neural systems at the California Institute of Technology. It's easy for us to face the fact that our production team is quite talented. Gary Dieterhoff, Barbara Vance, and Rena Shaklesko. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking skeptic check. This episode, About Face. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio, because after all, it leaves your face free of obscuring unsightly wires, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the program. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.